Chefiona McCardle Mish, Aspervilium Kerfal Cheru de Saclair Shaw, Shachle. I'm Fiona McCardle and I'd like to welcome you to this programme, Shachle. Bay as Lehren and Adamach John Quine. The Life and Times of the Reverend John Quine. Canon Quine is well known for his novel, The Captain of the Parish. But we rejoin Julie Quine to hear more about her book, a biography of John Quine himself. As Riechen Vanen as Nehelenen. The Kings of Man and the Isles, how a dynasty of almost 200 years came to an end. Taur Skiel John Quine, the captain of the parish, na Skiel Druchtach, ta Jichen Duen and Stru Crowey, Master Kovudius Vanen, on Snablinton Hockey Jeg, Jaius Died, and Jai Veus, and Acht Berhi and Favel. As de Kerkuntachen Sajenach Jen Riet Chira. She skile je grey, saling Victorinach, as Lubinus Chendeanon, as Nakochainlachen Sechnet, red ta slay renich, Lyorish Ion and Kasler, as Kreduin Crowy and Tre. Tan Lior Sait on Sheer Nellion, but John Quine mac de Illum Quine, van a willer on Sforster leg a tre. John Quine's novel, The Captain of the Parish, was first published in 1897 and was enthusiastically received by, amongst others, T.E. Brown. The book was republished in 2017, both as a book and as an e-book by Julie Quine. Julie Quine's husband is the great-grandson of John Quine. As we heard last time in Charlet, Julie has now published a book called Manx Patriot, The Life of Canon John Quine, Antiquarian, author and captain of his parish. John had so many facets to his character with his with all his interests. He, he was very difficult to actually categorize and actually organizing the book was a very difficult task. I rearranged it several times to actually get it to make sense and not make it too all over the place. So I put all these literary and antiquarian aspects towards the end of the book, at the beginning of the book, really. It involves his upbringing. It takes you through his life decade by decade to actually show you how he evolved from a family perspective, from his work in the church and his work in the community. So you get all the different aspects of his character and his life coming through and then at the end, obviously, all the literature and historic aspects. Mona Douglas certainly drew a sympathetic portrait of him as she understood him as a a vicar who really cared for his parishioners and tried to promote their best interests in any way he could. And... Like all true Manx nationalists, with a strong identification with the island man, he tried to serve the island all his days in the best ways he knew. But he was a strong individual from a family of strong individuals. Yes, his father was a Manx miller. and It's quite interesting seeing the story of his boyhood and how his upbringing influenced his personality and particularly religion because in those days 
you went to church on a Sunday and you also attended Methodist Church. Well, that's certainly John's experience. And that didn't go down well at all because he was taught that the Methodist people didn't agree with what the church people were doing and it was amazing how strongly John felt about what he was taught in his youth. That all comes out in the book. And I think that's why he wrote The Captain of the Parish because there are so many anecdotes in there which do reflect on his experiences through life and actually why he returned to the island Everything is in there, it's all his experiences. And I think that was one of the criticisms of John, certainly by T.E. Brown. He felt that John was putting perhaps too much of his own experiences into his books. But they were an amazing reflection of the island at that time. He was very keen to preserve Manx heritage, history um, and precious documents and he did have a love of nature which transpired from his childhood days and his love of the island and he did submit a resolution at a meeting at the National History and Antiquarian Society in 1930 that the calf should be purchased by the Insular Government to provide a national park and bird sanctuary. That came as quite a surprise. And the resolution was carried unanimously. So I assume that he was partly responsible for, for it being a nature reserve today. Mm. The fact that he had strong views about things, even when president of the Isle of Man Natural History and Antiquarian Society, he nevertheless was quite willing to put forward what were unpopular views, in a way, about the history of the island. With his classical background, he was quite determined that the island was part of the Roman Empire. John was actually president of the society for four terms, which again was a surprise. But um, yes, it, he had a great love of languages and was quite fluent in Latin, Greek, Italian. And his education and knowledge of those languages was, well, he was exceptional. And I think he proved that quite early on in his career at the grammar school he gave a selection of geological lectures 12 geological lectures and again they were printed in newspapers and the detail was absolutely amazing and I think at that point he proved that he had the ability to come up with derivations for names and so on it it was all very convincing very interesting and later on when he was looking at the historical side of the island, he translated an immense amount of documents. These are medieval Latin documents. Oh, absolutely, yes, the Chronicae Maniae. He became quite annoyed with people who translated documents like that previously and made errors in translation. And because he was able to do that, he started wondering whether some of the names of the Isle of Man and some of the places could be connected to Roman origins. And it was quite convincing the way he came up with derivations for different names of roads and places. Very, very complex and actually quite boring when you actually (laughs) got down to it. And again, some people recognise that, but 
I don't think that helped him. He'd been battered in the church and then suddenly in the antiquarian society he was he wasn't believed that was obvious from what people said but as some of the professors that he contacted at at oxford and so on said only the spade will tell and he had this belief really until his death that the romans had an influence on the other man in many ways and he suggested areas where they might have been prevalent particularly the north of the island Ramsey I seemed Aquasulis was mentioned he came up with many derivations and it was quite sad that nothing really came of his work <laughs> another anecdote was Timwald he gave a meeting at Timwald in the 1930s and he reckoned that within so many years of his talk there, they would be erecting a statue to some Roman governor. He was really quite adamant. People know him from the captain of the parish, but you discovered the other pieces, including a bit of a gap in the middle of Cross's Folly. Yes, I really got into reading Cross's Folly. I thought it was very indicative of Peel, as it might have been in the 1850s. And, you know, the ship building, the the fishing, and so on. But I was very disappointed to find ten pages of the document missing. And I literally had to make up a small part of the book to make it make sense, because I was so desperate to actually get it out there. Because it is a a kind of love story, but slightly sad at the same time. Well, it is very sad. Again, it's it's actually based around the folly in Peel, so it is based around a real monument, but he's made up the story around that, and it's very believable and very well worth reading. Mm. And the other story, Balnahowen, how similar are they, or how do they differ from Captain of the Parish? Balnahowen is probably similar to the captain of the parish it's again set in the 1850s or around that era which I suppose the captain of the parish that's a sort of similar era too but Belna Harwin is set around a a number of characters again it's a a romantic story it is it is a story that's based around Peel and the Alman the characters so it is actually very similar to the captain of the parish he did actually write another novel, which again was quite a surprise. McQuig of the Isles, and this was set mainly on the Isle of Man, but also in the Isles of Scotland, because John had visited those Isles. And from a, I think he was interested in the Isles from a religious point of view, but also historical. Everything was historical with John. He, he researched the history of everything, whether it be the bishopric, churches, the anything, breweries, you name it, He's, he researched it. He had a sense of humour as well. He was a typical Victorian man, but caring and very intelligent. And all this comes through in his stories. But there is also a sense of tragedy in his stories. Mm. So, McGregor of the Isle, are you going to publish that as well? Do you know, I'd love to, but unfortunately, only two of the chapters survive. Oh, so, yeah. I reckon the rest were either 
thrown out of the vicarage window or perhaps burnt by family later on because that was another thing that came out. One of his daughters was very... Well, she knew exactly how John had responded to various people and to keep that part of his life a secret she burnt most of his manuscripts his letters etc after his death so we don't have those to refer to Mm -hmm. so we'll never really know exactly what was going on there But this project, from when it started, you started looking at John Quine himself, but you've published manuscripts that he hadn't had published himself, you've published the story of his sons and so on, and now you've completed the work on John Quine himself, so you've really brought together a great body of work in this project. Well, yes, it was... Well, the boxes of um, manuscripts that I had, I will probably put those in the Manx Museum at some point, but yes, there were so many boxes of manuscripts that I was trying to understand where all the things came from. And actually, when I went back to some of those letters, there were new things that came to light which I hadn't appreciated the first time. For instance, it's always been a little bit of a mystery, his headstone, which is actually at All Saints Church in London, in the graveyard there. It's supposed to be by Archibald Knox, but there was also a bit of mystery as to whether it really was by Archibald Knox but I found a letter which was written by John's son-in-law in 1941 during World War II saying that he was getting the headstone erected on his grave because it was in an absolute terrible state when he visited and he said we got this blue slate headstone that's designed by Archibald Knox and we're going to have it erected there and going to get it all inscribed etc so the mystery is no longer a mystery, it was definitely put there in 1941 and it was definitely designed by Archibald Knox his friend for 47 years and the friendship between those two men was was quite something and much more than I believed it was in the first place Julie Quine, whose book Manx Patriot, The Life of Canon John Quine, antiquarian, author and captain of his parish, has just been published. Trehent Godred Crovan Gusmanen, Vafarenem Gilgacher Hanna, Ta Crovan, Fethernit Unskilk, Mur Nafoglen Crow, Ta Chitter Dos, Ta Gess, Er Unchas, Jacas. As Vain. Scosolach the Velen Crow Vain, the Twiggen, Ek Bear Vanglen, Ta Casla Rish Low. Hanelfis ein Erinor, Henkenenem Shaw, the Vain of Farenem Codred Croven, Achta Pertelig, Er Her Roshan I Shaw. Fuddy, the Rowe, Kyo, Low and Ben. Nayai, Ta Shen Jichen Duin, the Row Godred Croven, Henk Voshila, As Sayela Voshelen and Sheer Nalben. Nun go vesta, J. Wigany, as gale. Ta bean chithen, goler chronica on shaws and hellen, red ta emnen regethen, tanen go vesta, Jane Hilk, as Lochlanish. Mur Mac Thorstein, Costain, as Mac Olaf, Kaula. 
The rise of Sorley or Somerled brought the strange situation where Godred Croven's dynasty ruled man. But then the Mull of Kintyre and the Southern Isles from Isla up to Rum and out to Barra and south and north Uist were in the hands of Sorley's descendants as kings of the Isles, while Skye, Harris and Lewis on the north remained under Godred Croven's dynasty. In 1254, the successor to this split kingdom of man and the isles was Magnus Olafsson. However, this was at a difficult period in the history of man and the isles. In 1263, there was a battle fought in Scotland at Largs on the Firth of Clyde. And whilst it wasn't decisive in itself, it had an impact on later history, as Manx National Heritage's curator of archaeology, Alison Fox, explains. Battle of Logs took place on the 2nd of October 1263. What was the events that led up to that? Really, it started almost 100 years earlier. We had the Kingdom of Man and the Isles that was uh, set up by Godred Croven around about 1079, give or take a few years, either there. And that had been going on for a good 100 years. But in the middle of the 1100s, the kingdom was starting to become a little bit more unstable. You had the uh, Western Isles uh, and the western coast of Scotland under Somerled. They were starting to rebel against the Norwegian rule, really. And during the mid-1100s, there were battles between Somerled and the Kings of Man and this basically meant that the kingdom was split. So the Kingdom of Man still existed but it was essentially Man, Sky, Harris and Lewis whereas the, there was a big, big middle bit that was under the rule of Somerled and uh, so of course that meant the Isle of Man was a little bit more isolated and that it was a, a bit harder to defend from Norway. So since then, really, the Norwegian grip started to become a bit, little bit more loose. The Scots began to see that power was slipping from them in the west of their country, so they started becoming a little bit more active. And so all of these things sort of culminated really in the mid-1200s uh, with this real struggle for power between the Norwegians and the Scots, and the Isle of Man was caught up in that. The Isle of Man at that time paid homage not only to Norway, but also to England, I suppose, to the power broker that was adjacent to them. Yeah, for many years, the relationships between the Kings of Man and the Kings of England had been really, really strong. Many of the Manx kings had been certainly been to the court of England. Some of them, uh, such as Olaf, who founded Russian Abbey, he was actually brought up in the English court. So that relationship had been there for a, a long time. Having said that, the Isle of Man was still very much its own place. It was still the centre of this independent kingdom or this kingdom that was a little bit more independent, but under the rule of Norway. But in the rule of Magnus from 1254, the island became involved in this power struggle between Norway and Scotland, which included the Battle of Largs. The Norwegian rule became just not quite as powerful. Um, King Harkin of Norway started off being quite um, a resolute and determined leader, but as his rule went on, he became a, a little bit more relaxed almost. Um, he wasn't quite as harsh on the rebellions. Um, so King Magnus on the Isle of Man, he was very loyal to King Harkon, uh, but he could maybe see that things were changing a little bit. The Scots were becoming much stronger as well. Um, and so you have this group of circumstances really that lead to 
this start of diplomacy between Norway and Scotland about, well, what what do we do about this? And there have been diplomacy going on for many, many years. Uh, The Norwegian fleet was eventually brought up into the west coast of Scotland by logs and they had been trying to negotiate with the Scots, the Norwegian accounts, the saga of King Harkon, say we really tried to be peaceful, but the Scots were playing for time. And there might be something in that. The Scots may have been playing for time to, be, to enable them to build up their forces a bit more. So by the time we get to the Battle of Logs, it was October, the weather was getting worse anyway. So there was this massive storm that essentially wrecked the Viking fleet while the Vikings were perhaps more vulnerable. They were trying to rescue the ships. That's when the Scots came in and basically tranced the Norwegian forces. King Magnus wasn't actually involved on the site, we don't think, but there are records to show that he was, as he was loyal to King Harkon, he'd actually been sent out to cause a the Scots a bit more trouble uh, around about Loch Lomond. There's documentary evidence to say he was perhaps raiding and causing as much instability and much trouble as he could round about Loch Lomond about this time. Mm. But although the Battle of Largs itself was a bit of a running skirmish in a way between the Scots and the Norwegians, nevertheless there were repercussions on the Kingdom of Man and the Isles. There were, it took about three years uh, until things were formalised at the Treaty of Perth in 1266, but during those three years, essentially the Isle of Man was still there was still a kingdom of man in the Isles. King Magnus still did rule the Isle of Man. But all this time negotiations were going on again between Norway and Scotland. In the end, um, Scotland became far more forceful, far more aggressive and essentially said to King Magnus, well, we'll just attack the Isle of Man, it's up to you, your choice. So to try and prevent that, Magnus said, right, OK, well, yeah, we'll I'll see, I'll not exactly surrender, um, but uh, the Isle of Man became part of Scotland after King Magnus's death in 1265, but really the formal, the, the real end of, kingdom, of the Kingdom of Man in the Isles was the Treaty of Perth in 1266. It wasn't a complete surrender, uh, there was compensation, uh, the Scots had to pay compensation to the King of Norway for the loss of the Isle of Man, um, so we, we weren't just handed over, you know, free without anything, but it was certainly the, the end of the more independent that we'd been since the Kingdom of Man in the Isles started. And what about the English throne at this time then? Did, did they not take a, an interest in, in Magnus and the goings-on, particularly, I suppose, against Scotland? Not particularly. At this at this particular time, the English and the Scots were actually getting on quite well. Uh, the rulers got on fine, and in fact it was... Um, when the succession question came up in Scotland after the death of Alexander, it was actually the English crown that the Scots asked to decide who should be the rightful heir. So they were actually getting on fine. But it was only when the wars of the Scottish Wars of Independence started that the relationship between England and Scotland started getting a little bit more fractious, that perhaps England started paying a bit more attention to the Isle of Man, which was under Scottish rule at this time, because our strategic importance, exactly the same reason why we were part of Kingdom of Man and the Isles, exactly why Scotland wanted to retain us, England wanted to retain us because of where we are geographically, you know, a good, a really good stepping point. But I think one of the, one of the differences is from the Kingdom of Man and the Isles, where we were seen as a really good place to be. There were lots of resources compared to um, the north of Scotland and Norway, Scandinavia, lots of resources, really good stopping off point for going out and going to other places. 
when we get to Scottish rule and then the following decades when we're going backwards and forwards with English and Scottish rule, it's more of a case they didn't want the other people to have the Isle of Man. It's not necessarily that they wanted the Isle of Man because they saw it as a good place. It was more the English wanted to stop the Scots having it and vice versa. MNH's curator of archaeology, Alison Fox, and the importance, not so much of the Battle of Largs itself, but of the way events turned out after it was fought on the 2nd of October in 1263. That brings us to the end of this edition of Shachle this time. But Shachle will be back at 6 o'clock next Thursday. Now from me... Nishvom, Fiona McCardle, Slen Ryu.